Good to see all of your smiling faces. Good to see you guys. And welcome to those of you who are watching online. Um, I know a few of you are home. I mean, this, this surge has happened, and so uh, we're just delighted that we're all together, however we can do this. Uh, my name's Jeff. I serve as the pastor here. Excited to welcome you. If you did venture out on this snowy day for the first time to cross you, we're thrilled that you're here. There's a bag in the back we would love to bless you with. I hope you get to meet somebody new. And if you've joined us online as a new person, uh, again, I always like to say, shoot me an email and we'll make sure you get the goodies in the bag. We're thrilled that you're joining us this morning in worship. I'm going to dismiss the kids. So I know we got a few kids. Some of you sit strategically over there, but you can head out that door um, into children's worship. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward for the morning offering. So, um, and if you're visiting, please don't feel any pressure to give. This is just one of many ways that we worship God. And if you're online and you feel led to give, you can mail in a check or you can give through the webpage. Uh, And I wanted to say, Sarah Cantrell, our children's director, wanted me to thank all of you who participated in the pancake breakfast. I think the kids had a good time and I think our church was very generous, but I know because of this odd time we're in, you may have wanted to participate, wanted to give to kids going to camp, but couldn't. You can still give a check and write pancake breakfast or kids going to camp and that'll get to the right places. Uh, We were kind of planning on starting Sunday school today. One of our uh, teachers got the sickness and couldn't come in, and and then you've got the snowstorm and everything. So we might have a fun, like interesting, if you're not here and you wanted to be here for Sunday school, we may be delaying our start anyway. So trying to figure this out as we go, but but please, even if now is not the best time for you to join community, please be considering in the days, weeks, months ahead, joining a small group, joining a Sunday school class. Uh, our Discipleship Pathway Formed will be happening in February. I've got to pick the day, but I think it'll be Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8. I heard from enough people that that was a time that worked for them. So that's where we're going to land. Uh, a couple other things. We had our elder meeting, the first elder meeting of 2022 this week, and we got our update on year-end giving. Uh, try to just keep us updated on this. We hit our budget this year, so you can clap about that. I think that's awesome. Um, when I think about God's provision and the generosity of people in this church, the last two years to go through what we've gone through and to make our budget each year is, I think, just God's graciousness. So we can celebrate that together um, it may feel like we've dwindled a little bit on Sunday mornings with everything going on, but there's still a lot of engagement and participation. And I know there's a lot of you still present online. We just haven't been able to see you face-to-face recently. The other thing that I'll tell you is, you know, there's all this talk about the surge and when it will end. And um, I've enjoyed not having to talk too much about masks. Um, but we are going to be considering things again. Uh, I don't know that we'll change the 9 o'clock service too soon, but maybe children's Sunday school things or we're talking about youth group. Not, no changes until February. We don't, we don't want to spring things on people, but we are having more, uh, maybe more, we've been talking about it every month, but maybe more intense conversations trying to figure out what makes sense and invite, I, I invite whatever feedback. It uh, doesn't mean we'll do what you say. We're praying through it and listening to a lot of people, but we do value knowing how our church feels. And so if you want to chat or send me an email, let me know your thoughts. Great. If not, no worries. But we're praying about it and trying to make wise decisions as we go. And then I get to introduce via video two of our missionary partners. I think you'll find this, it's a pretty illuminating story, I think. It's Stanley and Madjuri Okoru. They serve with the Greater Europe Mission in Lille, France, as leaders of a church planting team. I think you'll hear this, but their heart's desire and vision are to see a movement of small churches planted all over the Lille metropolis. So uh, you, can, you can clap, even though they're not here. You can clap to welcome Stanley and Madry. Good morning, Crossview. I'm Stanley. And I'm Marjorie. And this is our daughter, Nora. Greetings from me. With your help, we serve as team leaders of a small church planting team of American and French missionaries. Before serving in Lille, I spent my childhood in between the U.S. and Nigeria before returning to the U.S. to go to college down the road in Wheaton, Illinois. Crossview is a fundamental part of my story. It's where I came to faith as a child when my parents were at NIU, and the family of Christ at Crossview has long treated me as a son. 
And while I often admired my parents' work as missionaries, I had no plans to follow in their footsteps. But God had other plans. I first came to France in 2011 as part of a midterm team with the goal of sharing the gospel among the sizable population of Muslims in and around Leo. I had originally planned on being in France only three years, but God very quickly made it clear that this was where he wanted me long term. Our revamped team partnered with a French missions organization with the goal of starting a new discipleship-based church plant while keeping our love for Muslims as a central part of what we do. I'm French and I grew up in Mulhouse, which is in the eastern part of France near Switzerland. As a young Christian, God placed a call on my heart for church planting, but also made it clear that it was a call for the future. I taught as a high school teacher in the French education system for six years before my position was shut down. I took that as God's leading and soon thereafter enrolled in a mission training school in the Netherlands. As a young adult, I had participated in several short-term mission trips in France organized by a French missions organization. So, it was only naturally that I reached out to them at the end of my studies and then ended up joining the team in need. I'm sure all of you have heard about Paris, but France is so much more than Paris. Lille is in northern France, almost on the border with Belgium. It's a modest-sized city of 240,000 within city limits, which actually makes it one of the largest cities in the country. The Lille metropolis area has a population of 1.2 million, making it the fourth largest metropolis area in France. As the capital of the north and the formerly heavily industrialized region, Lille has long attracted migrant populations from Europe, North Africa, and further afield. In fact, it was the opportunities to share the gospel among the Muslim population in the Lille metropolis that motivated the choice of Lille when I first came to France in 2011. If you receive our newsletter, you know that the name of our church plant is the Stitz Église en Réseau, which means Small Church Network. It's our heart's desire and vision to see a movement of small churches planting across the Lille metropolis. New churches imply new believers and disciples who will take seriously the Great Commission. God's calling on all disciples to make disciples who make disciples. For a little bit of context, the National Council of French Evangelicals set a goal of one church for every 10,000 people in France. There are 30 evangelical churches in the Lille metropolis area, and the vast majority hover between 20 and 50 members. Now that you've had the chance to do the math, you've probably come to the conclusion that we need 90 more churches to reach the goal, and more importantly, to reach the people of Lille. And by the way, this situation is not unique to Lille, or even to France. In fact, in Europe, there are less than 2% of committed believers, making it easily one of the least reached regions of the world. Over the last five years, we've doubled down on street evangelism, sharing the gospel through our passions, including but not limited to photography, language, arts and crafts, etc. As a result, we've had many opportunities to share the gospel, to invite our friends to take part in Discovery Bible studies and small groups. We've had the joy of seeing more than a few believe and become part of the church family. Uh, in early 2020, we had two small churches of about 20 people total. Since then, our numbers have dwindled for a variety of reasons. Some people moved for professional reasons, some teammates relocated back to the States, but most painfully, we had multiple instances of church discipline. We sometimes feel like we are living the parable of the sower over and over again. Often people respond to the gospel message only to turn around at the first sign of difficulty. Despite the challenges, we're excited for what God has in store for a few different reasons. God miraculously provided a house for Marjorie and I last year. Um, our recently arrived French teammates um, arrived in Lille um, right at the beginning of the pandemic uh, and also 
just recently bought a house in a neighborhood next door to ours, a short bike ride away. Another recently retired couple and a young single uh, man moved a half hour away. All these moves mean we're much more spread out uh, across the metropolis area. But we're looking at these moves as God's leading to start new small churches, Chitsiglis, in each of these new neighborhoods. So if you would, please pray for us. Pray for a new Discovery Bible study group in January and a new discussion group on what the Bible has to say about our values. Pray for opportunities to love and witness to our neighbors. Pray that a meeting with the Deputy Mayor in January will lead to ideas about how we can seek the good of our neighborhood and city. Thanks so much for listening. Au revoir! All right, let's pray. Let's pray for them. Uh, Jesus, it's a privilege to partner uh, with the Okora family. Um, I didn't realize how far Stanley goes back with our church family. It's really cool um, to see the story you're writing in his life. And we pray for them. We pray for these new meetings that are starting. We pray for these opportunities that they're seeking. We pray for wisdom for them to be good neighbors. Oh, Jesus, I, I just get a sense as they share even on that video that they have seen some hard times, uh, that they have faced some real challenges, but, but you seem to keep their spirits buoyant. They, they have real joy. I can feel it. And so we pray that you would continue to encourage them, give them joy, give them strength for a difficult calling. And we want to see your name lifted high everywhere. And we pray for the people of France that they would know you because you're awesome. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I've shared this with a few of you, but um, Kami and I have been in Illinois for a while. We're originally from Ohio. And uh, my sister lived in downtown Chicago for a while, which was really cool, her and her husband. And Kami's sister and her family lived in Evanston. And so we kind of felt blessed. We were living in Illinois and we had family here. But because of the pandemic, um, just kind of the ripple effect of everything that's happened with the pandemic, my sister left downtown Chicago for North Carolina, <laughs> and Kami's sister left Evanston for Tennessee. And so we had a lot of family in Illinois, and now we have no family, um, apart from the church family, of course, but you know what I mean. And so we were struck a year ago, uh, again, we went, we were from Ohio, Kami and I met at Ohio State. I know not all of you like Ohio State, that's fine, but just know that Jesus changed my life at Ohio State, and I met my wife there. So I'm allowed to like it, okay? So Kami and I are big college football fans because we went to Ohio State, and we really liked our quarterback, Justin Fields. So a year ago, we're watching the NFL draft. We just kind of have it on in the background because we're curious, where is Justin Fields going to end up? And lo and behold, you guys know this if you follow football, the Bears had the number 11 pick. And they picked Justin Fields. And there was great celebration in the Kennedy household. And we began saying to one another, our whole family's leaving us, but at least Justin Fields is coming. (laughs) We're so excited. And we're not the only ones. So I was doing a little reading online at one point. This was months and months ago, but I kept it in my notes for the appropriate time. There's a guy by the name of Scott Morrow. Maybe you heard this story. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know all the details, but he got shot in the back, a bullet wound in the back. And and he's on uh, Parkins and Spiegel's show on 670, The Score. He said he's laying there. You know, he's got this wound. He's in a lot of pain, but they're trying to keep him awake. And he said at first he was focusing on his family. He's got to stay around for his family. And then he said this. Within a couple moments, I thought, well, I'm 41, Pretty much all of Chicago has gone our whole lives without even having great prospects for a franchise quarterback. I can't die before seeing Justin Fields take the field, man. I don't plan to die before he's a Hall of Famer. So Justin Fields is kind of a hero here, right? He helped Scott Morrow get through this. And for the Knitt family, he's like a hometown hero. I mean, he's from Georgia. He's not from Chicago. But it felt like to us, somebody we know coming to be with us again. That's what it felt like. It's kind of a silly story, but it's true. And uh, it's a good segue into our gospel reading this morning, Luke chapter 4. You say, how is that a good segue? I'll explain. (laughs) 
We're in the, during the church calendar, we're in the third Sunday after Epiphany, and so we're looking at these early stories from the ministry of Jesus, because Jesus is, he's being revealed to us. We're getting a sense for who he is and his mission, what he's about, what his kingdom is about, and hopefully again and again we're being shocked by what we see, because what Jesus, and you'll be, I hope you're shocked again today, because what Jesus is doing is so radically different than what we're accustomed to. In Luke chapter 4, we're going to be in 14 to 21 this week. And then we're going to finish Luke chapter 4 next week. It's, a, it's kind of a hometown hero story, sort of. Just like my Justin Fields. It's a hometown hero story, sort of. Kind of, but not really. Luke chapter 4 is a hometown hero story, sort of. This week it'll feel kind of like a hometown hero. We'll talk about Jesus. He's coming home to Nazareth. But next week you'll see it's, it's not really a hometown hero story. It's... They're going to try to kill him. You know, it's kind of like, well, what's going on here? So it's a hometown hero story, sort of. So this week, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, we'll read through it. It's a pretty straightforward story, but we'll kind of lean into the background. And, and this week and next week are kind of going to go together. So I'm going to say some things this week to set us up for next week. So it'll be kind of a full conversation. But as we said last week, the gospel writers all introduced the public ministry of Jesus in different ways. John's story probably was first, the first miracle, Jesus turning water into wine. You'll see as we read that Luke's story, this isn't the first time Jesus spoke in public. It's just his return to Nazareth. This is how Luke wants to introduce the ministry of Jesus to us. Chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Now, that's one of the things I'll talk about today, but we're going to set up so that we can come back to it next week. I just want to remind you, and it's a big deal to Luke. Luke is very clear that Jesus does what he does through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I like to remind us who the Holy Spirit is, what, what the fruit of the Holy Spirit looks like. Paul says it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are good things. And so I will sum that up this week and next week this way. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of advocacy. He's for you. Now, he'll bring conviction, and he'll bring warning, and he'll bring challenge, but he's for you. He's challenging you. He's convicting you. He's helping you grow because he wants you to live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Spirit of advocacy. We'll talk about that. So that's the Spirit, the Spirit of God. He's empowering Jesus' ministry, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as I said, it's not the first thing Jesus has done. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. People are talking. In fact, verse 15, he taught regularly in their synagogues. He was praised by everyone. People are talking about what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. Verse 16, when he came to the village of Nazareth, which at this time, I've read, I don't even know how you really know. Some people have said about 100 people. Others have said more than 100, but less than 1,000. So somewhere in there is how many people were in Jesus' hometown in the first century. Not a big town. So he goes to his boyhood home in Nazareth. And he went to do what he usually does. He went to the synagogue, synagogue on, the Saturday, on the Sabbath, on Saturday, and he stood up to read the scriptures. And it doesn't really tell us. I mean, I mean, we just get a sense that Jesus is coming back. He's this rabbi. People in Nazareth, are, is this Jesus from Nazareth? Is Jesus Joseph's son Jesus? Yeah. And we don't know. Did, did the people go, did, did the, the local rabbi go to Mary and say, hey, I heard Jesus is coming back. Would he read on Saturday? Or talking to the brothers, hey, could you get your brother? We're hearing things about, would he read on Saturday? And we're not even really told, is this like the scripture reading that was meant for that day? Or did Jesus have a little bit of freedom to say, hey, I would like to read, I'll read, I'd like to read from Isaiah. Can I read from Isaiah? We, We don't know, but all we know is Jesus shows up, hometown hero, coming back, everybody's been talking. Verse 17, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet is handed to him. And they don't have books back then, so he unrolls the scroll. He finds the place where he wants to read. It's Isaiah 61. It wouldn't have been marked that way in Jesus' day, but it's marked that way in our Bibles. Isaiah 61, verse 1, Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of advocacy. And he has anointed me. Now what? We're going to get a feel for the work that Jesus is coming to do. He's introducing his mission. He's anointed me to bring good news, the gospel, to the poor, to the downtrodden. 
He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. We're going to talk about freedom this morning. In fact, Luke, as he's, as he's, or Jesus, as he's reading this, is going to hyperlink Isaiah 58. And I'm going to read from Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. He's bringing this together with this idea of freedom, freedom, freedom. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see. Certainly a big part of Jesus' ministry on many levels. The literal blind and then the spiritually blind. That's a big part of what Jesus does. And the oppressed. This is where we get in Isaiah 58. The oppressed will be set free. And then we'll talk about verse 19. We'll kind of end our time talking about what this means. I've preached on this before, so some of you will know what's coming. But that the time of the Lord's favor has come, or to seed it for you, the year of jubilee. That's, the year of jubilee is here. Verse 20, you know, so Jesus reads, and he probably reads, I don't know, but people are captivated. They want, they're excited. What's he going to say? That's what the scriptures say. And, then, and even when we'll talk, we're, I'm not going to read Isaiah 61 this week, but I will come back to it next week because I think it's really important for you to understand what the response of the people is to Jesus and why. But, he, but he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of stopped kind of in the middle of the text in Isaiah 61. He's brought in Isaiah 58. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant. He sits down. Everyone's looking at him intently. And then Jesus says, I mean, and imagine the audacity. <laughs> Jesus can do it because he's Jesus. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled that very day. This very day. Today is the day that the scripture is being fulfilled. I mean, it is the ultimate in modern terms, mic drop. (laughs) That scripture I just read, fulfilled today. That's our text for this morning. Uh, Jesus is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm about. This is my mission. And again, I want to help us kind of feel, I hope, uh, mess with us a little bit because Jesus messes with us. The radical nature of the grace of God and what he's doing as he rearranges this kingdom around love. So again, next week we'll look at Isaiah 61. But this week, let's look at Isaiah 58 if you want to turn in your Bibles or follow along. Isaiah 58 is one of the texts he's bringing in, verse 6. And I just want you, because we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of advocacy, I want you to hear the language of advocacy. That we are for one another. What is... It's a broader text. You can read the broader context if you want, but I'm going to pick up in verse 6. He's talking about the kind of fast he desires, God desires. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free, free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Again, it's just four people, four people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. This is the heart of God. And then I love how verse 7 ends. I know this isn't what he means, but I just picture like your uncle comes over. You don't want to talk to him, and you're like hiding behind the couch. Do not hide from relatives who need your help. I don't know. That's just a funny picture. Then verse 8. Then your salvation will come like the dawn, and your wounds. I mean, what's the fruit? Your wounds will quickly heal. And because you're, because you're living out the heart of God, you were made in the image of this God and you're living it out, well, then, then your godliness will lead you forward. And you don't need to be afraid because the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. And when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here, he will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. We'll get into this next week kind of the difference between advocacy and accusation. Stop pointing your finger. Stop spreading vicious rumors. No, instead, feed the hungry and help those in trouble. And then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry, and he will restore your strength, and you will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring, abundant Abundant imagery, you will not lack. We'll talk about that in God's grace. Verse 12, and again, we're, we're talking, Jesus is preaching on the kingdom. He's, he's bringing the kingdom. He's building his kingdom. 
And he's call, calling us to participate, to be agents of that, to, to work with him. And you can even hear some of that in verse 12. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. And then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls, a restorer of homes. We're hearing God's heart for his people. We're hearing language that should prepare us. If the kingdom of God is coming, what will it look like? And if we're looking for the Messiah, what should we be looking for if he's bringing the kingdom? And if we're going to participate in this work, if we're going to be a part of building the kingdom, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you four things this week, and and you can hold on to them. We'll talk a little bit about them, but we're going to come back to these four things next week because we're going to contrast the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Satan next week. And you'll see why when we get into the text. (laughs) But we're going to use these four things to think through it. First of all, the kingdom of God is built on love. Built on love. Now, I say that a lot, but I do like to frequently, from time to time, remind us that when I say love, I mean Jesus. When I say love, I mean what the Bible means by love, and the clearest definition of, G- of love is Jesus. He is the embodiment of love. So if you aren't sure what love is, read the Gospels and get to know Jesus, and look at what he says, and look at what he does, and you will learn what love is. <laughs> love is Jesus. He is the embodiment of love. I like to say that because our culture has all kinds of definitions for love, and it's not Jesus. It's other things. I have done this frequently, but in our Discipleship Pathway formed, I always ask people, how would you, in your own words, define the culture's definition of love? And I, one of the first times I taught it, Brian Hart, one of our very own, just kind of spontaneously said, well, Jeff, I think our culture would say love is enabling people to do what they think or feel is best for them. Enabling people to do what they think or feel is best for them. I said, Brian, I think that's pretty close. <laughs> I think that is how our culture defines love. That's not how Jesus defines love, but that's how our culture defines love. We need to learn love from Jesus because the kingdom is built on love. And this building is empowered by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of advocacy who is for us. (laughs) And if we become a people, we'll talk about this a little bit this week, even more next week. If we become a people who are built on love, established on love, and, and we are empowered by the spirit who is who is for us, so that we are for other people, then we become a community, a society, a new people who are, who are described as people of peace. Paul is constantly calling the church to be at harmony with one another. And we're going to talk about the difference, we'll start a little bit this week and then more next week, the difference between when you view your neighbor as a rival or competitor or when you view your neighbor as a brother or sister. There's a huge difference. And it's hard to be a community of peace when your neighbor is a rival or a competitor. It is really easy, actually, to be a community of peace when you're, when you're advocating for one another. And then I hope you heard all through the, the Luke text and the Isaiah text that part of what happens is there's a freeing. There's a liberating of captives. And it's a different kind of freedom than I think we sometimes think about. And in the same way I think modern-day Babylon has confused us when we talk about love, I also think it's confused us when we talk about freedom. So let me say a little bit about this, because, because Jesus has come to set us free. But if we get the wrong idea of freedom, which I think is pretty easy to do, we're never really going to know what this freedom is. We're going to be blind. We're going to be looking for the wrong things. We're going to remain shackled and in bondage to sin. In modern-day Babylon, I think we tend to think of freedom, that the freedom means being masters of our own lives. And the reason I say that is because I think for many people, and, and sometimes this is what we call the American dream, for many people, we would view freedom as being able to get whatever I want when I want it, or being able to do whatever I want when I want to. I'm the master of my life. And I get what I want when I want it, and I do what I want when I want it. That's, a, I think, a modern-day definition for freedom. But I hope you see, if God is trying to create a new people, a new society of peace and advocacy, that you're going to run into problems. Maybe you do when you're living in modern-day Babylon. Because you may discover that sometimes we all want the same thing at the same time. 
you want your grandkid, this is going to date me a little, you want your grandkid to have Tickle Me Elmo, but so does everybody else. You want your kid to have PlayStation 5, but so does everybody else. And when freedom means that you get what you want, now your neighbor is a rival. What if they get it before I do? They're a competitor. And how do you have peace with your neighbor when there are rivals? When freedom for all means that each is his own master, then what happens is we begin to experience others only as limits on our freedom. You you see the contrast there. If that's your definition of freedom, then other people become a limit to your freedom. And now we're in competition. But the Bible, from the very beginning, I mean, this is Leviticus 19, 18 and on, and Jesus is going to make this super clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Your neighbor is not simply a restraint on your freedom. Your neighbor is as a brother or a sister. It's someone to love as you love yourself. This is part of how Jesus is rearranging things in his kingdom. It's part of how he's transcending things. I talked about this a few weeks ago, and I've actually been marinating on this a little bit more and more. I do find it fascinating that as Jesus is calling disciples, he doesn't call them to be masters. Remember, we talked about this. Because if Jesus calls you to be master, then ultimately you're going to be thinking, well, who am I ruling over? And it's probably going to be those people. You know, those people, the people who are, who are not one of us, I'm master of them, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. Read Matthew chapter 20, when James and John, or I love their mom, <laughs> come and ask, can we sit at your right and left hand in power? Can we rule? Jesus says, you don't get it. You don't get it. You're not going to rule like the Gentiles. You're not going to rule like the Babylonians or the Romans. You're going to serve because your king is me and I have come to give my life as a ransom. That's how it plays out. That's why John 13 is so significant because Jesus washes his disciples' feet. That's what slaves do. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, now you do this to one another. We, we, this is mind-blowing and this is what I mean. It should mess with you. But somehow Jesus is saying, you and I run after the place of the slave or the servant. And that's how we find freedom. <laughs> now again, I, even as I say that, I'm like, man, that's just, that doesn't feel, that doesn't feel like what I've learned as I've lived life. And all I can say to you is, so much of what Jesus says, if you're really hearing him, you won't understand him the first time he says it. That's why we read and reread and we engage in church life together because we've got to wrestle with some of this stuff because it's so counterintuitive. Because, because as Paul would say, it's the foolishness of God. Nobody's going to dream this stuff up. But we have to remember our king is one who is totally free and he voluntarily lays his life down for us. Therefore, if we are going to be free as Jesus is free, then maybe we redefine freedom to say, well, I'm free to love. And I'm free to lay my life down for others. And I'm free to serve. Because that's what true freedom is. I mean, it's radical. It's upside down. It should mess with us a little bit. But I hope you see, if we're trying to become a community and a society and a new arrangement of people, Do you understand that as the spirit of glad and loving service gathers and forms a people, it creates not a collection of independent and competitive individuals, but it it begins to create, and this is what the church is meant to be, a real community of mutual dependence on one another, where we're free to serve and love because that's just how it works. You say, how does that work? I say, follow Jesus, and you'll begin to see. And this is part of the radical nature of faith. Faith is not a one-time decision that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Now, that's important. And if you're new to the Christian journey, there is a time when you do. I trust Jesus. I believe he died and rose again, and I am going to allow Jesus to guide me. He's the way, the truth, and the life. I'm all in. Lord, to whom else will I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That happens. But if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, every single day is going to demand faith. And it doesn't always make sense at first. It will if you trust Jesus. 
But at first it doesn't. But as you trust him, you begin to see how this is going to play out. You trust him and, and, you, and, you'll, and, you'll, and you'll begin to, how can being a servant actually be freeing? I'll tell you, I think, because I think about that, I think freedom in Christ is something that God has really been teaching me over the last six or seven years of my life. I think even the last two years through the pandemic, I've learned a little bit more about freedom in Christ. I want you to think about some of the things that really actually truly hold you in bondage. If I were to go a little bit deeper, get below the surface and say, as I, as I talk about freedom, what if I told you that in Jesus you could be free from needing the approval of other people? Some of you say, that sounds like good news. Jeff, you have no idea how much I pretend to be somebody I'm not. You have no idea how often I shapeshift to try to be the person, the other person I'm with wants in that moment. I don't, I don't even know who I am. I'm just so caught up in trying to be who everybody else wants me to be. I've told you that's a big part of my story. I'm finding freedom. And I'll tell you, the freedom of Christ is amazing. <laughs> now, some of you are wired wild differently. You don't care at all about what other people think. And I, like, I respect you. <laughs> but you have your own traps, don't you? Because you have this laundry list. And it's got to be done every day. And it's got to be done perfect. And if it's not done every day, and it's not done perfect, you're in bondage. And you don't know how to be freed from your perfectionism and your need to accomplish. And I say, guess what? Jesus gives you freedom. He gives you freedom. And some of you say, I'm overwhelmed by shame from things that I've done. I say, Jesus gives you freedom. And some of you have lived through the last two years of this pandemic and you've realized how much you need to be in control. And you can't control what's going on and it's driving you crazy. And you have anxiety and panic because you can't control. And I say, Jesus gives you freedom. Trust Jesus. He's Lord. Trust that he's in control. Even if circumstances aren't the way you want them and you can't manipulate them to be different, trust Jesus. He gives you freedom. I can't even begin to tell you in words how satisfying the freedom of Jesus Christ is. But it's going to take trust, and it's going to take faith. It's going to involve a perspective change. This is so much of what Jesus is teaching, even in his parable on the Good Samaritan. I think there's a sense that the Levite and the priest see this man who's been beaten, and they think, what will happen to me if I stop to help this man? What will happen to me? But then you have the Samaritan who comes along and he says, well, what will happen to this man if I don't stop to help him? (laughs) The Samaritan is actually free. He's free from everything else so that he can love his neighbor. Jesus says, who actually loved his neighbor? (laughs) That's what Jesus is. He's he's challenging us. Well, on to this verse 19. I already said this, but verse 19 in Luke chapter 4 is the year of the Lord's favor. It's the year of Jubilee. We've talked about this. I I spent a whole sermon on this, I think, in this uh, sermon series I did on rest right before the lockdown. But let me just, for some of you as a refresher, or some of you who may be newer to the Bible, you, I mean, this is not the first thing you read when you read the Bible. So you might not know about Jubilee, but it's crazy. It's crazy. I'll just read, I'll pick up in verse 8 of Leviticus 25, but you can keep going after I finish later if you want to read more. But this is what it says in the law. In addition, you must count off seven Sabbath years, Seven sets of seven years, adding up to 49 years in all. And then on the Day of Atonement, in the 50th year, you will blow the ram's horn loud and long throughout the land. And he says, you're going to set this year, this 50th year, every 50 years, that 50th year is set apart as holy. And what does it say? A time to proclaim what? Freedom. Freedom throughout the land for all who live there. You can keep reading if you want. But basically what's going to happen is there is a cancellation of debts every 50th year. There is an emancipation of slaves, a freeing of slaves. And there is a restoration of property. Your, your inheritance is restored. If during the 49 years you hit hard times, that 50th year things are restored. It's crazy. One author says this, The Jubilee year provided a general overhaul of economic and social life to restore people and properties to their rightful conditions. It was meant to be a new beginning, a time when all who had failed to maintain their place in society were given a chance to start over, and when all who had benefited from such failures released what they had gained. Freely, they did it out of joy. 
Now, this was something Israel was supposed to do, but Israel never did it, according to the Bible. Of course not. Humanity has never seen anything like this. Can you imagine? The, the best analogy that I can give, I mean, we, we have no, not, nothing in history is recorded of this, but here's the closest I can get to an analogy that you and I might begin to access. I want you to think of, and I know, I, I, I was thinking about this, there's probably four of you that aren't that competitive, so you are just better than us. But I know the rest of you are with me. And I know when you play games, I know you can think of at least one. I can think of like four people that you hate it when they win. You don't need to win, but they, if they win, it drives you crazy. So I want you to picture you're playing Monopoly with those people. Those are the only people playing. You're playing Monopoly with them. And you begin the game. And of course, you all begin starting out the same. And you've decided you're going to play three games in a row. Three games in a row. Now, the, 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 you play the game. And the person who makes you the man, it's probably a sibling. It's your brother or sister, probably. And they win. And they beat you. And I want you to picture that smirk on their face. Like, oh, I'm better than you, brother or sister. I beat you in Monopoly. All right, time to play game two. But we're going to play it. We're not going to start over. We're going to keep all of our property and hotel and house, everything we have. We're going to keep it as we start game two. You're like, that's not fair. That's going to be the fastest game of Monopoly ever. I'm going to lose again. And then we're going to play another game. I've got to see your smirk three times in a row. It's going to drive me crazy. But if you want to feel jubilee, you lose that first game. You are the first one to go bankrupt. But you play game two and everything resets. Do you understand? That's, that's jubilee. That's why, I mean, we've never seen anything like this. It's baked into the law of God. But Israel never did it. In fact, it's part of the justification, if you keep reading in Leviticus 25, the land is supposed to lay at rest. And that never happened. And it's one of when Jeremiah talks about the exile, 70 years, because you miss 70 jubilees. <laughs> you just miss them. They didn't happen. And so the land has to catch up for all that was promised. Jesus is saying, and this is the, Jesus is saying, today is jubilee. Today is the day of God's long-awaited, life-affirming, soul-saving alternative arrangement for human society. Jesus is saying, today is the day. I'm inaugurating the kingdom of God. I'm bringing the church into existence. I'm creating a peaceable kingdom where the strong no longer exploit the weak and the poor no longer suffer. And God's favor is bestowed upon all the earth. Because it's all God's. He's the master. And human beings can flourish. And it's new creation because resurrection life is going to overwhelm death. Jesus says today is the jubilee. Jesus is saying the jubilee is, is no longer just a year. It's a person. Jesus is saying I'm it and it's happening. Now the only way that something like the jubilee would ever happen is if you had a community where freedom is freedom to love. Freedom to give. Freedom to serve. It's the only way the Jubilee happens. And since we're talking about kind of a society, we could, we could talk about God's economy of grace. This is the only way something like this would happen, in an economy of grace. God's grace changes the whole character of human life so that the whole of life is an experience of God's grace. Living out of, you and I are living out of God's generous giving to us. I want you to think about words as you talk about God's grace. Think about words like abounding, excessive, overflowing. Because God doesn't just give. He gives abundantly. He gives extravagantly. God doesn't give in a sort of carefully calculated way that is just enough, but no more. No, God gives himself away for us. God gives us the story of Jesus on the cross. God gives all he can because it's in God's nature to give to those he loves. And it's out of the abundance of what God gives to us that then we, I mean, we in, in essence enact jubilee. We give to others. It's, it's an economics of abundance and extravagant generosity. And in this economic system, if we use this analogy, the only resource is God's own generous self-giving. And if God's own generous self-giving is the only resource, you do know it's a super abundant resource. It all comes to us freely from God, and because it's freely given to us, we freely pass it on. That's what Paul says, freely you have received, so freely give. 
It's a process of constant overflowing of blessing. And this is where it starts to get radical, and this is going to demand faith as well. Because what Jesus is going to tell you is that the blessing comes not just to the person who receives, but maybe even more so to the person who gives. Now, some of you know that. But if you live out in modern-day Babylon, you may not know that. You may know the blessing only comes to the person who receives. The blessing only comes to the person who takes. Jesus says, no, 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 no. In fact, some of the greatest rewards go go to those who give it all for God. Give it all for the kingdom. I mean, it's radical. It's upside down. It's counterintuitive. It's not what you see, but it's what Jesus says is his kingdom. We are free to give. We are free to love. We are free to serve. And somehow, through this freedom, we, we... We are blessed in ways we would have never imagined. Abundant, overabundant, so much so that our cup is overflowing and we can bless others out of our freedom. It's a picture of the grace of God. Now, it sounds all good. I will tell you, and I like to remind us of this, our king is a crucified king, and so it's very costly. It's very costly to live this way, but it is the greatest way to live. You will find your deepest satisfaction. You will learn what true flourishing is. You will learn what love is and freedom is if you follow Jesus. If you use whatever power you have to serve others. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 20. Serve, serve, give, give. And somehow, you're not doing it to receive, but you will receive. It's just what happens in the kingdom. As you follow Jesus. Well, I started this sermon by talking about Jesus as the hometown hero. And I want to remind us, Jesus is always the hero. He's the jubilee. He's the one who's bringing this about. And he does it in surprising ways, right? He doesn't, just, he doesn't overthrow everything all at once in Satan's kingdom. We'll talk more about that next week. But he, wherever Jesus goes, jubilee is just swirling around. Debts are canceled, sins are forgiven, people are healed, lives are restored, homes are rebuilt. Wherever he goes, but it just, it, it comes quietly and slowly. It's, uh, these, I say this all the time in the winter, but these are the Sundays where it's perfect. You went to bed last night and, and the landscape looked one way. It looked totally different this morning, right? And how did that happen? Did one giant two-inch thing of snow just fall all at once? No, one tiny snowflake at a time. Did you try to listen for those snowflakes hitting the ground? Good luck. But that's how the kingdom comes. One snowflake quietly, gently, patiently, lovingly, joyfully, one beautiful snowflake at a time changes everything. That's how the kingdom comes. And so Jesus goes forth and jubilee is today, it's today, swirling all around him. And now because we have been given, because we have experienced, we, (laughs) we were the losers. And then Jubilee came for us, and now we've been given a fresh start. And so we just want to give fresh starts to everyone else. You sinned against me? Oh, God forgave me. Let me forgive you. I'm angry, I'm judgmental, I'm critical. And then I remember it's Jubilee. Oh, it's Jubilee. And the Spirit of God is a spirit of advocacy. Maybe I can be kind and gentle and patient. It's Jubilee. You've wronged me. I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm going to pardon you. Because God has pardoned me, and I want to teach you how amazing Jubilee is. I want to give you a fresh start because Jesus gave me a fresh start. You should have seen where I was before Jesus, but Jesus Christ is my hero, and he's made my life different. I can't wait to tell you about it. This is good news. Jesus is the Jubilee. So I'll end this way. Luke 4 kind of begins with people hearing the reports of Jesus. They're hearing the reports. So I want to ask you, have you heard the reports? What kind of reports would people be saying about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Well, what's going on in the early stage of his ministry? Well, have you heard that wherever somebody is experiencing demonic oppression, Jesus casts out demons? That at the name of Jesus, at the word of Jesus, demons listen and obey. Have you heard that? That the kingdom of God is coming. That the kingdom of God, that Jesus is announcing, is more powerful than the kingdom of Satan. Have you heard that? Have you heard that where there's maybe even teachers or religious authorities who are misrepresenting God's rule, that Jesus is bringing a sharp rebuke? 
that Jesus is correcting us. He's teaching us the character of the king. Have you heard that where there is selfish complacency? Some of us know that. There's selfish complacency. Jesus is bringing warning. He's trying to warn us. If you stay there, this is where it leads. Don't stay there. What do I say? You'll never drift into the Jesus life. And have you heard that where there is sin and failure, Jesus is proclaiming forgiveness. He's declaring an assurance of love. Have you heard that where there is sickness, whether in your body, in your skin, or in your mind, or in your soul, where there is sickness, Jesus is bringing healing? Have you heard? Have you heard that where there is material need, somehow Jesus is providing daily bread for thousands, for thousands? Have you heard that where people were previously excluded, they weren't allowed, they couldn't come into the temple, Jesus is making it, he's inviting them in. In fact, Jesus is doing what happened in the temple at the table, and he's making room for everybody. Have you heard that where there is desire for power, Jesus is giving us an example of humble and loving service? Have you heard that where there is death, Jesus is speaking life? Have you heard? Let's pray. Jesus, we hear, we have heard. That's why we're here. We're probably all at different places on our spiritual journey, but we have heard of you. Some of us more, know more of you than others. Some of us actually probably think we know more of you than we do. But we're here because we're eager to learn more. Because we're the poor and we're the brokenhearted and we're the downcast and we're the oppressed. And when Isaiah prophesied of freedom and you said today's the day, we are ready for that freedom. Freedom from bondage, freedom from slavery. So Jesus, we want that jubilee. We want to know, we want to experience, we want a fresh start, we want newness. Jesus, would you set us free? Holy Spirit, would we know your power? We're not afraid of you. You may convict us of deep, dark sin. You may confront us with things that we've been avoiding. You may warn us, but we know you're doing it for our good. We know you're challenging us because you want us to be free and we aren't even aware of how blind and oppressed we are. So Holy Spirit, speak to us. Breathe life into our death. Breathe love into our hate. Help us to dare to believe that this way of service will actually lead to freedom and joy like we've never known. Would Crossview Church be a church that trusts you, Jesus, even if it's costly? And would we say thank you to you when we experience the blessings of following you? It's in your name that we pray.